Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Sam Chamlin. Hey, Food and Faith folks, this is Kendall Vanderslice. I'm so excited to be here with Anna and Sam today to talk about my new book, We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. And we're thrilled to have you here, Kendall. Since Kendall has been on the pod before, we just decided to give the work away and have her do the intro for us today. Kendall Vanderslice is the author of We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. As you may know, if you've listened to her episode in the past, she is a writer and a baker who studies at the intersection of food and theology. She holds an MLA in Gastronomy from Boston University and a Master's of Theological Studies from Duke Divinity School. And she's written for Christianity Today, Christ and Pop Culture, Religion, News Service, and Fathom. She lives in Durham, North Carolina with Strudel, her big-eared beagle, who we may hear his voice as well on this podcast. Yes, he does like to join in on these interviews. We should also say Kendall has just finished her Master of Theological Studies um, at Duke in the last couple of days, and so allow us to offer our congratulations on behalf of our listeners. Yay! Thank you so much. Thank you. Can't believe it's done. And so, um, so get us started with just, um, and we've, we've talked a lot about food, faith, your background in baking, um, but we really want to dive into this book um, as it's coming out and get people excited about the content of this book. But we want to kind of get behind the book a little bit. Why, why this book? So tell, us, tell us a little bit about, about this book, what you hope to accomplish with it, and why, why this book is needed at this time. Yeah, so this book began... Uh, It began as my thesis in my gastronomy program when I was at Boston University. Um, I was studying commensality, which is the social dynamics of eating together. And at the same time, I was interested in how the Eucharist kind of made its way into every single course that I was taking. Um, And it hadn't really occurred to me that my interest in um, commensality and my interest in the Eucharist intersected uh, until I heard about St. Lydia's, um, which is a dinner church in Brooklyn, one of the first dinner churches um, that really kind of kicked off this movement or this series of, of communities. Um, and when I, when I heard about St. Lydia's, it clicked that not only is there so much to study um, of the Eucharist from this food studies perspective, but that when we study the Eucharist as an entire meal and when we, when we worship around the table, then it takes on entirely new meaning. And it began to pull together these interests in food and faith and this interest in commensality and really began to trigger this question for me of how, when we, when we understand what happens around the table and then we understand the Eucharist as a full meal. How does that transform our understanding of what Christ was doing when he gave us this meal of bread and wine as his body and blood? Um, so the, the project began there. Um, I did my master's thesis. I studied a dinner church just outside of Boston uh, in the Boston suburbs called Simple Church. I spent a semester um, just attending the church, interviewing members, and trying to get to the core of this question of how has this church, how has this community transformed your understanding of who God is and what church is? Um, And as I was studying it, I was kind of tracking some other communities that were doing similar things. And I 
began to realize that there was sort of a, a trend building and all of these pastors that I spoke with had very similar stories where they either had a community that was dying or they had been tasked with planting a church in a new place or they recognized a need in the community and felt the Holy Spirit prompting them to meet that need at the table and to worship around the table. And as they all started, they all began to hear about one another and began to realize that there was this movement of the Spirit taking place across the country um, and it was only after they began worshiping at the table that they met, converged and met one another and realized they were not alone in this wild and crazy thing that they were doing. Um, so as I tracked this trend, um, I kind of, I just had a spreadsheet where every time I heard about a new dinner church, I would put it in. And um, at one point I thought I would make a road trip around the country and visit every dinner church. Um, but then my spreadsheet hit 50 churches and I realized that that was <laughs> a not long trip. possible, <laughs> a very long trip. Um, and once I hit 50, I realized, you know, there, there are more people worshiping in this way than I can track. Um, there are folks worshiping in this way who don't have a social media presence, who aren't putting their websites online. Um, like really, this is such a robust thing that's happening that the idea of trying to track it is just silly. Um, and so instead, I decided that I wanted to look for the story of how this came to be. And so I connected um, with nine different pastors um, across the country from a range of denominations, a range of geographic locations, um, and met with them all to ask, how did your church come into existence? And how has this mode of worship uh, transformed your community and transformed your understanding of what it means to be the church. So one of the questions that I feel like is just continues to be live for me, and we've touched on it a bit with others on the pod, and hearing you speak and reading this book, um, I just want to dive right into this question because I think yeah. a lot of, and the question is, what's the difference between a dinner party and a dinner church? Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, it's interesting because I notice in your book that um, both in your own experience of how, you know, your your entry point into having dinner together, that it wasn't explicitly a religious experience. I just mm -hmm. read the um, chapter on potluck church and yeah. um, Rachel tells this story about, you know, not going to Monday, Thursday service and having people over and that, you know, 10 years yeah. of it, of ruminating on how powerful it was just to have a dinner party. Um, and so I'm curious, what's your, yeah, what's your take on that question? Why, why are they different and why have so many people ended up at dinner church from just what we might call like, quote, just a dinner party? And I don't, I don't want to, yeah. I don't yeah. want to minimize that, but, <laughs> but there's also is something different when it's explicitly When it's worship, explicitly church. Explicitly church. Yeah. yeah. I think, um, I think the question of what's the difference between a dinner church and a dinner party is kind of parallel to the question of what's the difference between a dinner church and a potluck after church. Um, and in one sense, my answer is there isn't a difference. You know, the, the point that I'm trying to really press throughout the book is that God is present whenever we eat, that God is actively at work communing us with one another and communing us with creation, communing us with our own bodies, and through that, communing us with God anytime we sit down to eat. Um, but what happens at the dinner church 
service is that is explicitly acknowledged as an act of worship, and it's tied explicitly to the sharing of the Eucharist, um, this meal of bread and wine. And I think that there, there is something very powerful about recognizing the Eucharist as a full meal, and with that, recognizing its purpose in communing us again, with one another, with our bodies, with creation, and through that with God, and that the work of the Eucharist is the work of the table and is the work of God at the table. Um, so I, I think that, this, that God is present and God is doing transformative things anytime we eat, and I think any time we eat can be an act of worship. But what's so unique and powerful about dinner churches is that really explicit tie between worship, the Eucharist, and the act of eating a full meal together. Jumping off that for a little bit, I mean, you opened a lot talking about commensality and the Eucharist. And so I mm-hmm. um, would invite you to sort of reflect and critique as Christian communities practice the Eucharist. What's typically, yeah. or how, as we understand, is sort of a typical Eucharistic process. What is one thing that we or several things that we most often miss in a typical Eucharistic setting that dinner church calls out? Yeah. Well, first off, I would say there isn't even a typical Eucharistic setting or communion setting, right? Because the the heartbreaking thing is that this meal that's meant to be the point of communion and unity of the church that marks us as the body of Christ has been one of the biggest dividing points throughout mm-hmm. church history. Um This last semester, I was digging really deep into Eucharistic controversies of the Reformation and really looking at how has the Eucharist been a point of division for the church and what does it mean to take this thing that that was the whose purpose was was unity, who became a point of division, and then use it again um, towards repenting of our division and and seeking healing. And um, so, with that, there just is no typical communion because every denomination has a very different approach. And I think what what gets missed is typically all of these differences, um, these points of controversy and these these things that have divided us. What typically gets missed is that the end goal is not to get it right, not to get our theology of the Eucharist right. And if we have it right, then we somehow have a trump card over everyone else that has it wrong. Um, I think what we really need to get at is to realize all of these different expressions of partaking in the Eucharist gives us a glimpse of something about God and something about what's happening when we share this bread and wine. Um, and so what I'm one of the things that I found in dinner churches and that I hope that people who come to this book um, can experience is this realization that it's in our diversity of Eucharistic theologies that we get to a picture of the robustness of what it means to take part in the Eucharist. I've been spending a lot of time in in Calvin and Zwingli and uh, Luther in the last month or so, and it was really interesting to me to find um, well, first off, I can't believe that I didn't actually spend much time in in their their Eucharistic writings before writing the book. <laughs> um, I you won't tell. <laughs> probably would have been a good idea to brush up on what they had to say before I uh, wrote about the Eucharist. Yeah. But um, actually, I think it was also very powerful to observe um, 
to observe and then bring those observations into my readings of um of the reformers and the thing that really kept uh was just very striking to me as i read them was all of them had really valuable and important insight into what it means to take part in the Eucharist. And all of them had strong convictions because they were trying to protect a piece that they found really powerful and also trying to protect overthinking this thing that is at its core of this embodied experience. Um, and so it was just really interesting to me. I think that that's really the the thing that that when it comes to just churches taking the Eucharist that I think gets the most missed is there is so much power in this sacrament and we don't get to that by arguing about it. We get to it by actually practicing it and learning from one another what others experience in the partaking of this sacrament. I think it's so interesting because I feel like um, it's in these things we hold most dear and precious that there's that power, but like you pointed out, also the division. I, I just was having this flash of talking to a, a friend who's a um, chaplain, and she was saying, you know, that they try to do ecumenical worship, but the thing that they yeah. can never do together is communion or Eucharist yeah. because yeah. the Catholics don't want to have this and then, uh, uh, you know. and yeah. I am curious because I think you did such a beautiful job in your book about <clears throat> highlighting a variety of settings and denominations. Um, but I didn't find, and maybe it's because, I mean, this is a live question for me, like, does this exist? Yeah a place that was giving an example of actually letting go and saying, Hey, you know, so my background such and such, but for the sake of the unity of us all coming together at the same table, I'm going to let go of exactly which words need to be said or exactly mm. how the hands need to be held. Or, um, have you seen examples of, of the table bringing together across denomination in that way? I think that the the folks that attend these services typically do span denominations. And I think that the practice of hosting a dinner church has triggered a lot of questions for many of the pastors around um, their denominations practices. I don't know if there's necessarily an example of a church where it brought together um, pastors in and congreg congregants who had strong opinions one way or another that set them aside for the sake of unity. But I do think that the actual practice of doing dinner church raised a lot of questions. Um, and it definitely shifted for many of the pastors how they do communion and what they say. And But one, uh, one angle that I also really hope that folks get when they come to my book is that I'm not trying to replace these differences and disagreements and these strong convictions and liturgies with something new. I'm trying to present a new perspective that we can all come to and say, there is something powerful in this mode of eating together. And how can I understand this in light of my convictions around the Eucharist? And also, how can I allow this 
to challenge my convictions around the Eucharist. And so I really think that no matter your theological background, there's something to be gleaned from recognizing worship around the table. And I think that I think that folks from any from any denomination can come to this book and can glean something that will both they can bring their own convictions to it and they can have their convictions challenged by it. And that's really what I hope to see out of it. That's where I think this deep is going to come from. Yeah, that's beautiful. In that spirit, I mean, the book is, is yeah. full of just very diverse communities. And so just wondering, just as the book is also an invitation, um, or at least it reads to me as an invitation to try it. Um, so can dinner churches be done anywhere? And what are the particular things that if somebody wanted to step into this world, what are some of the things they should pay attention to? Like what are some of the moving pieces that they'll have, they'll have to be thinking about as they put together a community or attempt to assemble a community? Yeah, I think that dinner church can be done anywhere. Um, although at the end of my book, I kind of point to my goal is not to get every church to become a dinner church or to get every pastor to become a dinner church pastor. My goal is to get all churches thinking about the power of eating together and to reconsider what shared meals can do to their community. And I think dinner churches provide a really powerful example of how that can be done um, in a, in a very explicit manner. But I do think that dinner church can be done anywhere, um, that it can be done in any size of community, that it can be done in any denomination. Um, I think the things that really anyone who leads a church needs to attune themselves to are these dynamics around the table. It's really easy to glorify the table as this place that brings everyone together and to kind of romanticize the power of what happens when we eat together. But the reality is eating together is vulnerable and it's awkward and it's hard and it leads to uncomfortable conversations. And that is where the power of the table lies. Um, that is what That is what I believe the church needs to be, is a place where it is safe to enter into these really painful and difficult and oftentimes very complex questions. But the table provides a space to disarm our fears and to disarm our uh, walls that we build to avoid these more vulnerable um, conversations. And so I think that that's really the, the piece that I that I think anyone who wants to try this really needs to attune themselves to because it's really easy for the table to actually be a place that ultimately hurts those who are present because this vulnerability is, is what makes it powerful. And if that vulnerability is not stewarded graciously, it also makes it a really dangerous place to be. So without giving the giving your book away. Um, can you, is there an example of a congregation that was forced into one of these vulnerable or challenging conversations and that the practice of eating together actually moved them forward? You know, so my research of this book took place, um, in the fall of 2016 and the spring of 2017, so I think every, every community everywhere was forced into these more vulnerable conversations um, just around politics and around what was, yeah, just what was taking place in our country. And so I think that 
I was very attuned to that. And I think every, every congregation was attuned to that in that season. Um, some places the divisions were, were more stark in some places they were, um, not quite as stark. Everyone kind of held to similar perspectives. Um, but it was, it, it was something that I had to encounter and, and, deal with as I actually researched of what happens if I sit and talk with a pastor and we hold very strong differences of opinions in, in particular areas. And, and what does it mean for us to sit and worship together? Um, you know, yeah. What, what does that look like and how do we converse and how do we move forward? Um, so for me, I experienced that vulnerability in the process of researching. Um, I think also several communities have, have experienced this when it comes to uh, recognizing the socioeconomic ch- uh, differences that exist within their communities and how to um, value every person that is present as someone who not just bears the image of God, but that is necessary to understanding all these nuances of what it means to bear the image of God, that everyone present is really necessary to understanding what it means to worship God fully. Um, and I feel like Anna, actually your church is such a uh, garden church was such a powerful example of that. And so I wonder if maybe you could give us more um, just of an example of how you witnessed that take place. You know, I was just um, talking to my sister who was part of the garden church. I was founding it the other day as cause I'm working on this chapter on communion Eucharist for my book. And mm. She was, it was really helpful because it's easy for me to remember like the really good times and the really hard times. And she was just reminding me of how like dinner every week was a little bit awkward and a little bit draining and a little bit beautiful. <laughs> um, so yeah. at Garden Church, we moved straight from communion into um, dinner and there's this time, for, you know, big community meal um, and often, you know, a good, at least half of the people there were, you know, it was their place to get, to get their hot meal for the day. Um, and I don't know, I think I, I often, and I, I think it's a both and like, I think it's true that it is, is one of the most powerful things to sit down with people who are from various socioeconomic classes and finding out like, Hey, we can all talk about the Dodgers or we can all talk about, mm-hmm. you know, like, where did you grow up? And there are these commonalities. Um, but she was reminding me, she's a music therapist, so she, you know, she's in the helping profession and she was just reminding me how tired she got. And sometimes she just had to go like sit and eat somewhere else because for her sitting down immediately felt like she was in the, the giving mode and that she knew it was a choice that if she was going to sit down at this table with this diverse group of people that all had different needs and that she flipped into like, I'm the official listener mode. And, mm. and, and she was reflecting that, you know, that was, that was her choice and she recognized that. Um, but it, it helped me to think about how there is reciprocity and there's such power in that. But even the act of reciprocity takes energy and attention and is, is uncomfortable and awkward. And I noticed like, I mean, I'm an introvert. I, I try to be a good pastor, but like, if you're tired at the end of the day, like I often would stand back and kind of look over, watch kind of the whole space, which was appropriate and needed, but like it took dedication to sit down at the table Mm. 
and say, I am going to engage in this conversation. And it might mean that I am going to spend 20 minutes listening to someone share about their genuinely really hard life, feel like there's nothing I can do to make it any better, feel like I feel bad about the resources that I have, you know, and all those different like uncomfortable feelings that come up and that by sitting down and committing to eat at a table, um, that you're opening to that beautiful thing and also just like hard and uncomfortable and tiring thing. Um, and I guess it's just, I think it's an important piece to talk about that we can kind of gloss over in dinner church is so beautiful, which it is, and I believe in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, right. And, and I think that this, I think this really points to why it's such a powerful image of what it means to be the church, right? Because I think it's really easy to avoid those really painful, awkward, and uncomfortable conversations in a traditional church where you come and you sit in a pew and you may or may not talk to the people next to you. You know, the most interaction you have might be the passing of the peace. Um, and it can be more comfortable and maybe you might leave a little bit more energized and refreshed and feeling like you had this worshipful experience. Um, but it was entirely between you and God and not uh, didn't help kind of hold this weight that so many people in the church carry. And I think that dinner church and all of the awkwardness and uncomfortableness that comes with it helps us to see that, that that is what the church is for, that the church exists to be in community with one another and to bear one another's burdens and to hear one another's stories that we don't necessarily want to hear all the time. And being the church like that is hard. (laughs) It's really hard, but it's necessary. And I think it's what we're called to. And I just continually think back to, I mean, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, like when he, he is just berating them because they are not sharing their meal in such a way that it brings them into communion. They're sharing a meal in such a way so that those who have access to wealth enjoy their meal together and get drunk in the inner room while those who don't have access are left on the outside and the outskirts of the building. And um, he's saying, you know, you're bringing your you're bringing these cultural divisions with you into your worship and it is not the Lord's supper that you share. It is this inverse of the Lord's supper and it is eating and drinking judgment upon yourselves. And that is harsh language that he's using about the ways that we worship together. And that language has been this point of, of disagreement in these Eucharistic controversies because people are so scared of what does it mean to eat and drink judgment? And what does it mean to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? But it's not about our Eucharistic theology. It's about our communal organization. And it's about sharing these deeply painful and uncomfortable moments in order to heal these deep divisions, these deep cultural divisions that exist. Um, And it's hard. And that's what it is to be the church. (laughs) Well, I think that there's something really powerful about that too, that reminds us that church is actually hard work. And I know that some feedback that mm-hmm. I've gotten, and I think, you know, I know the other people I know who do dinner church or, you know, something that's not just your typical worship experience. One of the pushbacks and complaints is it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And that, <laughs> uh-huh. and what's interesting is it comes, I often heard that from people who 
attended the garden church and I've heard this in other settings where it's like, well, I actually just kind of like to go to church and receive, you know, like uh-huh. I just like to be fed. Yeah. I, li- I like it to be quiet. I like it to be reflective. And, and I don't think there's anything I don't wrong with that. I mean, there's, there's a place for that, but I think it's such a powerful reminder to say like, actually church is hard work. Being the church is hard work mm-hmm. and it's not just hard work for the paid professionals. And I think that's what right. dinner church can bring alive for all of us is that actually the work of being church together, the work of being in beloved community together is not about a product or a performance that you receive. Right. It's about being with people in the messy list of life and sharing each other's joys and burdens and being in life together. And that's hard work. And so to kind of just say like, yeah, you're right. Church is hard work. (laughs) And, and you can't, you can't just put some money in the offering to assuade yourself of doing that work. And uh, well, we'll, you know, we'll pay someone else to do the hard work. It's like, no, (laughs) we have to sit down and have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think really thinking in terms of um, family is really important. Um, just in, in terms of seeing ourselves as a church, as family, we are, we are called brothers and sisters in Christ and the church is meant to function as a family. And no one would deny the fact that family is hard, (laughs) that family is really hard work and that family is also deeply valuable. And, but I think that when we kind of separate and, um, it's really easy to see family as this place where we have commitment despite its difficulties because it's so important. And then church is kind of this other side thing. But I think that um, especially as a single person studying dinner churches and a single person really questioning how does God provide for my needs for community and how does God provide for my needs for family um, and truly deeply believing that God provides through church community and that that is God's intention to provide community for everyone is through church community primarily and that church family over the nuclear family. I think it should really shift our understandings of, of where that hard work needs to take place because when, when we recognize the church family as the family where this hard, hard work takes place, we also recognize that the church family is who sustains us in these hard moments in our nuclear families and these hard moments in our marriages and these hard moments in our singleness and these hard moments in parenting and these hard moments in childlessness, that the church is meant to be this family that holds those burdens. And so um, it's not just a stepping into another hard community and, and, and forcing ourselves to accept the difficulty of that, but it's restructuring our understanding of how family functions and not just where we commit to the hard stuff, but where we really glean this depth of community that we need. So as we're wrapping up, I wanted to take you one more place of, of exploration. Um, a lot of the churches, well, I, mean, I think all the churches that you highlighted were startups in some way, whether it was part of an existing mm-hmm. community um, and a new service or a new church altogether. Even St. Lydia's, um, which was founded in the last decade, um, is only in the last decade. There's a lot of beginnings and newness, um, but you also highlighted a church that's very close to my heart, um, Table of Mercy, that our mutual friend Alex mm-hmm. founded. Yeah. And you shared about it closing. And I'm 
curious if you could speak about why you decided to include that story. And, you know, knowing the statistics, there may be other communities in, that are highlighted in the book that um, will have a similar experience and just haven't yet yeah. by the time it was, you know, published. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that, that cycle of beginning something new and, and ending? And yeah. how do you see that in terms of this, like, the work of the church? Christianity is a faith founded on death and resurrection, and we can't talk about resurrection if we also don't talk about death, and that that there is something powerful to death that we really need to observe, and we really need to pay attention to. Um, and so when, you know, originally I had interviewed Alex for the book, and we had been in conversation about featuring Table of Mercy, and um, it was as we were planning a time for me to come and visit him that he came to me and said, I'm sorry, but my church is going to close. I don't think that you can, you know, should use it in the book. Um, and I sat on it for a bit and felt just deeply, uh, deeply convicted that I really needed to include that story as long as he was willing. Um, because we have such this rhetoric around church death of it being a negative thing and of it being um, either a sign that, you know, sometimes it's taken as a sign that like God has removed God's blessing from the church or that there's some kind of spiritual failure of the community. Um, It's really viewed as this kind of failure and we use church sizes as a metric of our spiritual well-being, which is just such a terrible metric because there are some, giant churches that are really unhealthy and some tiny churches that are incredibly healthy. Um, and so I really wanted to look at it and, and ask, um, what is, is there anything good and beautiful in church death? Um, and what I found was that, yes, there is that, that death is this pathway towards resurrection and that, um, in, in a church death, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on all that took place in and through the church throughout its, the course of its life. Um, and there were such powerful stories of transformation of people that attended Table of Mercy, whose lives were deeply impacted by its very short life. And their stories were are worth honoring and necessary to honor. And so I really, I I included it to say Table of Mercy was not a flop. It was not a failure. It was not um, unsuccessful by any means. Um, It was deeply transformative and powerful and God allowed it to live for the couple of years that it lived and have an incredible impact in the couple of years that it lived. And in its death, it then led to new life for Alex and new life for these church members who were a part of it. Um, so that was really part of my part of my vision, including it was just to honor those stories, but also to really try and re-narrate the way that we talk about church decline and church death. It's a prominent narrative right now, and I think that there is. Uh, there's a lot more beauty to observe in church death and church decline than we are wont to do. I just continue to hear this clarion call from you to 
perhaps think of church as organism, that it is complicated and it is a living thing. And I think we've so ingested church's organization Mm -hmm. or church's bureaucracy, hierarchy, you know, whatever choice word will be. And eating together, getting into the weeds on our real relationships with one another. Um, and also just yeah. owning the fact that things live and things die. And that yeah. is the church is of, a body, right? Exactly. It's a yeah. Body. That, and and, and yeah. recognizing, I think really the corporateness of that body that like our individual churches are really important and necessary and not something to be, um, devalued, but also they're all a piece of this much larger organism, which is the corporate body of Christ, which is a historic and global communion of saints. And that it's really easy to lose sight of the corporateness of that, that we are one large body with many parts and not a single part can say to another, I don't need you. Um, yeah. Spent a lot of time with Paul writing this book. It's <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? I'm not necessarily <laughs> who I'd expect myself to spend a lot of time with, but um, yeah, it has happened. <laughs> Paul, and then a lot of time with Calvin, like really not the places I thought I would be. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so we always end with hope, um, but we're going to change the hope question a little bit. So, and okay. the first thing I hope is that people will go out and buy the book. Um, you know, talking about life, um, regardless of whether dinner church is kind of in a person's future. Mm-hmm. The idea of thinking about church as life um, in this season of Easter and in the season of springtime, um, certainly we hope folks will go buy the book um, and dive into it and bring it into their community. And the book is called We Will Feast, <laughs> Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. But what do you hope people will get out of the book? And you've touched on this, but if you had to compact it into like one sentence, when they finish the book, I hope they'll do X. My prayer is that everyone who comes to the book leaves it with a renewed sense of hope for the work that God is doing in this world. Um, this just the work that God is doing in and through the church around tables. Um, I just really pray that it triggers hope in everyone who reads it. Uh, both, yeah, past pastors and and congregants and people who've been wounded by the church and people who are seeking some kind of spiritual experience you know i i i want everyone who reads it to be filled with hope that that god is alive and moving when we eat together so your book is sort of going multimedia of course we're doing the pod today you can read the book but then you're also going on tour um Keep it till really excited. We're going to be hosting you as part so of the Stockton Association of the United Church of Christ. Um, but tell us a little bit about the tour. Where are you headed? Um, where can folks yeah. find you? And what what are they going to experience as they as they meet you on tour? Yeah. So my tour is I'm going up the East Coast. Um, I'm going to be in D.C. I'm going to be in uh, Maryland slash Pennsylvania. I'm going to be in New York, Boston. Then I'm going across to Toronto, down to Grand Rapids. St. Louis, Nashville, Chattanooga, and then back home to Durham. I think that's all the spots. Um, <laughs> just a few. Um, and, and I'm going to be um, doing a range of things. In some churches, I'm going to be actually leading a dinner service. And in some churches, I'm going to be leading uh, workshops for clergy who want to start dinner services themselves. Um, yeah, that, that's the main thing. Pretty much I'm just going around telling people how great it is to eat together and why they should do it too. 
So I'm super jealous that you're going to visit Sam. Um, yes. But if, I'm so excited to come I get the Sam. book, but at least I get on tour. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true, right? <laughs> true, true. I did have the joy of having Kendall visit the Garden Church years ago. That was the beginning yes. of a good friendship as well. Um, yes. But where can people find out about your tour and order your book and follow you online? Give us all your, your addresses and handles. Um, the best place to find all of the things is through my website, www.kendallvanderslice.com. And if you go uh, to kendallvanderslice.com slash we-will-feast, you can find order information for the book. You can find a really beautiful trailer that my friend put together that gives you a little clip of what it looks like to worship together around the table. Um, you can find a pastor's guide, a downloadable pastor's guide. Um, that is meant to help churches read the book together. Um, you can also find a book club guide if you want to read it with book club and some really cool social media clips that you can share and some downloadable uh, posters, all kinds of things. If you just go to my website, um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at KV slice. Um, you can follow my newsletter www.tinyletter.com slash edible dash theology. Or you can bring Kendall dinner to her house. <laughs> you can absolutely do that. <laughs> yes, if you're or, in North Carolina, I will welcome your food. Or invite her to yours. Well, thank you so much, Kendall. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And we're really excited for people to be able to read We Will Feast and continue to be in conversation with you. Thank you guys so much. It's such a pleasure to have you. And I'm so grateful for your encouragement in this. Thanks for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest University School of Divinity, Plainsong Farm, Garden Church, and the Keep and Till. And the music is by Paul Deaver. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.